Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society, mile marker 115. That's 115. 115 episodes, eh? <laughs> eh? Eh? For those listening in Canada? You betcha, buddy. <laughs> For those listening in Minnesota? <laughs> I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And it's cold, y'all. We are in the van, and uh, we've had a bout of uh, winter weather in winter. Go figure. And uh, today, it's just kind of cold and, I don't know. High of 29, which yeah. I know all the Canadians listening and people in Maine are uh, <laughs> Negative disgusted 29? right now. Yeah. <laughs> you pussies. We are a bunch of wimps. And man, my favorite jacket that I have had since I was about 13 years old, maybe even before that, has finally gotten the death blow of a rip on the shoulder and I don't know if it's going to recover. So I got to I got to up my gear here for the long haul. And I couldn't be happier. <laughs> oh. It's the frumpiest damn looking thing. Yeah. I mean like like if there's a defining thing that like well, you know, now that I think about it, it will well, now that I think about thinking about it, actually you should keep it with that big old rip and you should put a put a piece of duct tape on it. I was thinking it. about it. Because you know how like strangers sometimes like uh, show us kindness and yeah. you know offer yeah. us money and stuff. <laughs> I bet that's gonna double with that jacket. It was already like the homeless lady jacket. Like it was pretty obvious you've been holding on to that thing since birth. <laughs> but with the duct tape, that's like icing on the cake. That's the coup de gras. So the other day I went into one of our favorite places to get breakfast, and uh, it happened to be later in the day. But we were still going to get coffee um, with our meal. And where is that place? It's Bojangles. Testify! Yeah. In North Carolina. I think it's only in North Carolina. Do they have them in South Carolina? I don't know. Really? You think it's only North Carolina? Maybe in South Carolina. But I don't think much more than that. Oh, my God. Another reason ever to leave North Carolina. Yeah. So um, I went in and I was getting food and coffee and the guy that waited on me was, I had, I had our thermos with us. My plan was to just dump the two or three cups of coffee that I was getting into the thermos and that way it would stay warm, hopefully until the next morning. And this guy that was waiting on me might have seen my jacket. (laughs) He might have seen. Wait a minute. This wasn't breakfast time. No, I know. Oh. That was I said that it wasn't breakfast time. Well, but uh, he might have seen that I had uh, ripped up what he probably wouldn't know this, but a pair of my old pants and used them as ties to tie up my pants that I'm current my pants that I'm currently wearing to keep them out of the snow slushy water. 
Um, he could have just looked at the whole picture and been like, yeah, she's homeless and was nice enough to give me two additional cups of coffee. And, um, so that was really nice and gave, what did he do? He gave me like, instead of three pieces of chicken, he gave me like six and there was something else. Yeah. Gave me an extra bow round. Yeah. Which is like a hash brown for those people that don't have Bojangles. <laughs> um, we're like, we have our whole other language when it comes to eating at Bojangles. It's bow time. Yeah. They have bowberry biscuits that are mm. like biscuits with, I think, blueberries in them, but mm-hmm. they're called bowberries. And it's like a bow home, go home, smack you, smack the bow out your mama's bow good. Something like that. Yeah. Wow, I just tried to free flow. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah. I thought it would turn out better. Yeah, this episode's great. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> speaking of people giving us stuff, I, and you know, again, not asking, um, minding our own business generally. The other day we were at one of the parks, the only park where we can fill up our water and in the winter. And we were doing that and I was just like organizing the van. I We had just come from uh, the classes that Gumby teaches and I had gotten some groceries because it was supposed to snow and we didn't know, you know, how much we were going to be out in the country and not be able to be mobile after a week. So I'd gotten some groceries. I'm like putting everything away in our limited space minivan and this car had pulled up and it was like a young woman um, with her husband and their kid and she eventually and whatever they were eating smelled good it might have been Bojangles um she got out and she came over and she was like um I I don't know how to ask this but um are you are you um homeless and it's like well I mean, yeah, I guess so. Like, we live in our van, so we're kind of just technically houseless. And she really wanted to do something nice for us. And I told her, like, I don't know if we really need anything. I literally just went to the store and I'm putting groceries away. But she kept persisting. And I was like, well, hell, we're out of hot sauce if you really want to do something. (laughs) Like, she was specifically saying, do you need any food? And, um... She said she was on food stamps, so it wasn't going to put her out at all. She just had extra money because during the pandemic, I guess, um, certain people um, that have money from the government, they are getting, like, extra money. So I'm just – I was just so impressed that she was willing to pass that on. And she came back not only with hot sauce, and I had just mentioned, like, some instant packs of, like, oatmeal or grits – But she came with, I would guess, my Price is Right guess would be about $200 worth of groceries, (laughs) including, like, chicken and hamburger meat and, like, all sorts of canned soups and um, good snacks and, like, fresh fruit. My God, the fresh fruit alone is probably, like, $50. And something that wasn't covered that she got was dog food for Sherlock and a giant box of milk bone treats. And then her son came up, her little boy came up, and she was like, now give her a hug. And he gave me a hug, and he also gave me $25 from his little hands. I really like that. And, uh, you know, of course, the generosity is such a good thing to practice itself. And then getting your kid to... Hug a hobo. Yeah, hug a hobo (laughs) and to, you know, just kind of teach them, like, I mean, this is a little kid. Like, right, some of his first memories, you know, are going to involve, like, generosity. Yeah. What an awesome lesson. And she seemed like, kind of like, 
I don't know, one of those like country girls that finds her way into the city, like some one of those kind of like just simple, sweet people. Yeah. And uh, man, like there's just, I don't know, so many good lessons that just come through, like people like that, that are so uh, non-intellectual. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I feel like I'm totally missing the mark the more I talk. But mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, she obviously wasn't doing it to like get anything out of it other than the joy of helping someone. And while there might have been other people out there that needed more, she had said like she tried to help this lady who um, basically just had like a, a wheelchair and was on the corner probably asking for money. And she went to the corner store and got something for this lady. And when she came back, the lady was gone. She's like, and she was in a wheelchair. Like, where could she, like, how far could she have gone? <laughs> um, but she just did it because she said she really loved helping people. And I know people say that, but she really went above and beyond what anybody had to do. And it was right before the snowstorm. So the grocery stores were packed. I know it wasn't fun going shopping when she did. Yeah, and the grocery stores are getting kind of bare. Yeah, that too. And I just, you know, like I was telling my grandma this the other day, we weren't asking for anything, but it sure is nice to experience that, whether you're on the giving end or the receiving end. Yeah, I used to have more complicated feelings around, like, if somebody offered me something, um, on the one hand, like, well, I guess... I was about to say on one hand and then the other hand, but I guess it's kind of the same thing I'm about to describe. It's my pride. My pride would come up, and that's what I'd see. I'd be thinking about me. I'd feel like it was a uh, a commentary on me, mm-hmm. you know, that I had I'd failed. I was needy or something. And um, now I realize that when someone wants to give you something, and I'm not talking about these hustlers out there on the street that just kind of badger you until, like, you know, these little little wimpy little white people like, oh, here's $5, leave me alone, please. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about like just somebody who maybe has a sign or doesn't even ask, like we are just going about your business. Yeah. And I realize it is a give and take, like both people walk away with something. And uh, now I just, I feel like I've learned to handle it with more grace. If somebody offers me something, um, if they offer it in the form of a question, like, hey man, have you eaten breakfast? I'm not trying to get anything from them. So I'll be like, yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, just we just ate, actually. Mm-hmm. And we've had this exact situation happen yeah, yeah. where a guy's like, well, let me buy you another one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that point, it's really obvious that they are getting something by the giving. And I'm getting something by someone trying to show kindness. And uh, just I've learned, like I was trying to say, but got sidetracked, um, to handle that with more grace. Just say thank you and to walk away and recognize that, like, I don't have wounded pride because of that. You know, it's like something nice just happened and just let it be nice. And isn't it interesting that in this particular situation, this woman had, I mean, she freely admitted, like, you know, she gets benefits from the government and right now she's got an excess of it and she wants to help and pass it along. And I know in, you know, in some circles, people might bristle and be like, well, that's not free money. That's my tax money. But you know what? Are you going out and like offering to buy people groceries? Are you just paying taxes and remaining anonymous and then not even getting the joy of doing something nice for someone? Well, those people might say, why would I go out and buy groceries for other people? Why can't they buy their own damn groceries? Well, fuck those people. They're rude. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what is it about like... What is it about having compassion and being kind? Like if we're in a world where that, where we can't express that. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I was just being the devil's advocate there, obviously. <laughs> and another thing I think of is how many years, you know, that I've paid taxes, that taxes have been taken out of, you know, every dollar I've gotten from every employer, um, every purchase I bought, the taxes are added to it. So the way I look at it, when somebody, something like that happens, that's my money coming back to me. And maybe your tax money, maybe that's not your tax money that was used in a roundabout way to give this woman food stamps when she turned around and bought us groceries. Maybe your tax money meant to, went to some of those missiles that they're bombing other countries for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'd like to think maybe my tax money just, you know, through good fortune um, wasn't used for a missile and was used to maybe come back and help somebody hungry. And maybe that person was me. Yeah. So we all pay taxes. And yeah, I think that argument is a very stingy, miserly, short-sighted one. I mean, if we get it figured out where hundreds and millions of all of our money isn't going to just bullshit, you know, enriching uh, military defense funds and, you know, invading other countries and stuff like that. Maybe then we can reevaluate, like, you know, what food goes where in society. But as long as that much money is getting spent on violence and killing people, I don't really hear anything but just like background noise when people talk about like, oh, resentful, like, you know, my my money goes to feeding somebody. Yeah, it's just so it's so messy having the government be the the middleman. Yeah, and I'd say I know speaking for us, we don't want to exploit that because the yeah, way we're not on food stamps. Yeah, we avoid that as much as we can. Um, because one thing I've learned through growing up poor and watching my mom go through the food stamp thing and everything is it's not easy money. You get put through the grinder with that crap. It crushes your spirit. It wears you down. The long lines, the condescending people, the constant filling out of paperwork, the constant insecurity that you think you get this money and then, oh, lo and behold, this policy change. Now you got to fill out this form and see if you qualify and it's never ending. Um, I've never been tempted to want to get what some people consider the easy money that lazy people go after. Um, it's easier to work. It is easier just to fucking put in an hour's work and get an hour's pay than go through all that crap. I don't think people realize the loops poor people have to go through to get these benefits. Mm -hmm. yeah. These rich people that run the government do not want to give away anything. <laughs> so they make it quite difficult. Yeah. So kudos to her for just being sweet. And then, you know, even though it wasn't a tit for tat thing, I was just like, oh, man, I wish there was something that we could give. And Gumby, you had just found this really beautiful rose quartz necklace that was still on the pack like it was from the Walmart parking lot we were walking around. And I feel like I've already said this story, but I guess it was to my grandma. And uh, we were like, well, you know, I don't wear jewelry, so would you like this? And... I noted that the uh, the rose quartz has some meaning, like it, you know, protects you or it, like calls in unconditional love. Yeah, it was a love beautiful little pendant, and it just was so nice that I picked it up. Even though Teresa and I don't wear stuff like that, I was thinking I might hang it on the mirror or something. I didn't know what to do with it, but it was right beside the van. Um, we had spent the night in a Walmart parking lot because we just got done teaching classes, and it's kind of late, so we tend to go right down the road to this Walmart parking lot that has this really awesome Mexican food truck. So we have <laughs> kind of our little routine to celebrate, like being done with our work for the week. That and, is our Disney World. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we, like, smoke a little weed, and if it's a pretty evening, like it's mild, we'll just wander around these little, like, mini malls and, uh, you know, get our favorite foods and sit out and sometimes watch the sunrise and... That's one of my favorite parts about uh, being a hobo is just how 
things that people think are like really normal that they don't see that um, I find myself practicing appreciation, um, really seeing the value. I, we can turn a normal thing into a vacation sometimes, and that's one of our spots that we do that. But anyway, I was walking Sherlock the next morning. Teresa was in the, the store using the bathroom. I found that right beside the van, and it was so cool when that woman showed us all that generosity because, you know, I'm sitting there, and Teresa's talking to her, and I look up, and that catches my eye, and I'm like, you know, I like like you said, Teresa, I'm like, I think this might be for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I found it, you know, and I was thinking, like, how special that would be if I had shown somebody kindness and, you know, was had that kind of relationship with somebody that day that I was showing them kindness and it was just this nice moment. And then they had this thing to give me that I would probably treasure that thing. Yeah. So it felt, felt good to be able to return something. Indeed. Yeah. And I can't say enough about, um, like just really being grateful for the little things when you were talking about going around the parking lot and going to that food truck, man, on those nice nights, just grabbing a piece of curb and having a good meal sitting on the curb. Yeah, what was it we were talking about that one night about curbs? Like <laughs> like doing a tour of all oh, the best curbs in America? Yeah, y'all don't know nothing about no curb Yeah, meals. y'all know nothing about no curbs. Yeah. Because curbs are a good thing. I mean, depending on the curb, like it just fits your neck just right. You can lay down in the warm parking lot <laughs> that's still warm from the sun. And the curb is an excellent pillow for a while. In and, a not busy place. Like yeah, and there's all kinds there. of curbs. There's the old like squared off tall curbs that make really good seats. Oh. And then the rounded low curbs curbs that are good for pillows i'm starting to sound like bubba yeah <laughs> there's tall curbs and short curbs and long curbs Sometimes that happens and i'm sure our listeners are loving it but it's one of those things it's like definitely i feel like a good window into the hobo world because you find yourself on curbs a lot and it occurs to me that uh unless you lead a certain kind of life curbs are one of those invisible things you just try not to hit them when you drive that's it that's what a curb is <laughs> But, you know, you lead a certain kind of life. A curb is a place you hang out quite a bit. Indeed. And then curbs often, like, surround these little islands in a parking lot that can be interesting places themselves, like with one tree growing and sometimes interesting things there, whether it's something somebody threw out or plants or just nice grass. And, you know, we let Teresa, uh, Teresa, (laughs) we let Teresa kind of wander around and be on the tree. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes Sherlock, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next day it did snow and we were well we were actually preparing a shelter to um to maybe ride out the storm or at least have an option outside of the van and gumby mostly but uh we got some saplings and threw a hobo cone house up also known as a teepee or lavu man Mm -hmm. i feel like we've said all this stuff before no we didn't oh okay (laughs) <laughs> we didn't talk about any of this stuff. All right. Um, but yeah, Ter- Teresa's been playing with the idea of like building a teepee and she's been slowly chipping away at it very slowly. And then when the snow's coming, I'm like, all right, now we both have a common interest. This isn't your project. <laughs> like it would be really good to have a project. So I just like went out there and busted ass and cut the poles. And I'm like, you know, telling Teresa, like, you research. Tell me how many poles I need. How long do they need to be? We need details, details. Go, go, go. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, one thing, Teresa gets stuff done, but we have very different paces. And so, like, Teresa's got a good way of getting stuff done when we've got time. When we don't have much time, that's my time to shine. Right. Like, I turn into the drill sergeant, and it's often a necessary role because, like, I feel like I've got more of a grasp of, like, 
we got to get stuff done. We got to move. Like we got to delegate. Some we both got to be doing stuff that complements each other. So it was this flurry of activity, experimentation. Never haven't done anything like this before. Neither one of us had built a TP. Um, just threw this thing together, and it looked awesome. We put like pictures on. Well, I put pictures on Facebook. Um, but yeah, we uh, you know we're joking like, oh, we're not going to call it a TP because we don't want to uh, be accused of. Um, Cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation. So this is a hobo cone house. And somebody tried to get kind of smart with me about it. Uh, Like, oh, that's a nice white name for a uh, TP. And I'm like, I haven't heard of this uh, TP you speak of. Is it, um, do they cover it in plastic? (laughs) Because the hobo cone house is covered in plastic. And when it snows, we call it a hobo snow cone. Well, you call it a hobo snow cone, which sounds really dirty. Never get the chocolate or lemon flavor. And stay away from the strawberry, too. So how did it vent with the uh, fire inside of it? You tell me. I personally don't think it vented much better than the hobo wigwam that we did, but um, I'm going to give it another go. It's, uh, It's currently, it has transformed now into a Civil War dog tent. No, well, I mean, yeah. Let's. Well, the the teepee where you were skipping over the the venting, like yeah. that was a really good thing to bring up because that was the main problem with it. It started leaking by the end too, so it's like a first stab. We saw what worked. The structure itself, the poles seemed to work beautifully. The wrapping, uh, a lot of work, and it was just so smoky that we ended up not using it much. It was still a like decent shelter to get out of the rain to feed Sherlock and stuff. Just you know, better than getting rained on, but lots of leaks. But ventilation, man, I put it out there on all the survival sites, Facebook pages that I'm a part of, and just asked, anybody got any tips on how to ventilate? And I got all kinds of tips. Um, some of the, the tips are like, you can dig a ditch underneath your shelter. Um, better to face it like wherever the dominant wind comes from, which is west here. Kind of like a Dakota hole. Yeah, people compare it to Dakota holes, but I've used Dakota holes to cook before, and I don't know. I see it as kind of a different thing, Mm. but maybe that's because I don't have enough experience with it. But the idea is the same. A hole that's open to the air towards the wind outside of the shelter, and then that leads into the shelter to the fire, and that you can kind of cover it up. You can make a little tube. You can scavenge a pipe or roll up some birch bark or even just like make a little lip on the top and put some rocks on there and cover it with dirt like flat rocks. But anyway, you can have an opening. And uh, apparently that can help. We've experimented with that with the hobo wigwam, and it didn't work too good with there with that. But uh, another thing is the ozone. So there's this little skirt you can tie up on the inside that goes about to your, I don't know, head level if you're sitting down somewhere around there. And uh, then you can raise the outside material, you know, a good, I don't know, I've heard anything from two inches to a foot. And uh, that really creates a draft. And so inside, you've got the the ozone that's like all the way to the ground. And outside, the air is coming up and helping the, the smoke go up. And the main troubleshooting that people suggested looking at our pictures was that the smoke hole was probably too small. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm Teresa, not even sure how to fix that at this point because I have only gotten instruction from one document. So I'll have to figure out how to like relax the poles and somehow have a bigger opening. Why do you need to relax the poles? I mean, we laid the poles down in a certain configuration and I can't think of any other way that the hole, the opening would be bigger. You just pull the fabric down more, open it up. 
Well, oh, anyway, I mean, this yeah. isn't going to be very entertaining for our listeners, but yeah, opening the hole bigger. I mean, that's going to be a pretty easy thing. Uh, whether, you know, it's got to be coupled with this little fabric thing with sticks that you can put over it that kind of covers it. I forget what that's called, smoke flap or something. Um, otherwise, you just let in more rain. But yeah, making a hole bigger is about the easiest thing. Just mm-hmm. kind of pull it back and make the hole bigger. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, I was amazed to see that, um, you know, we always think about this type of conical structure as a teepee, but other cultures have also used a similar shape. Um, the, oh boy, I always forget the name of them. The Sami people in like the Norway, Sweden area, I think they use a lavu, L-A-V-V-U, I think. And then in Siberia, they use a house called a chum, C-H-U-M. And that's the same type of conical shape. And most people, even like Indians who use teepees, really favor um, these days having a wood stove in there. But uh, all the ways I've seen to upcycle to make a wood stove without buying one look like you need tools that we don't have, power tools and sometimes even a welder. I saw one design that was like possibly something to look into where you kind of make the the fire in the pipe that could be something to play with, you know, instead of like the pipe going to the stove in which the stove has the fire, the actual fire is in the pipe. That looked kind of interesting, but we'll see. I've got faith. Like it, it left me optimistic. Um, Teresa like was, you know, often, often when we do a project together, Teresa's like the glass is half empty. Like she's like, well, it failed. And, and I'm like, I'm like the glass is half full. I'm like, but look at what worked. The structure stayed up in some strong winds and like, I can see the potential. So I'm excited. If Teresa doesn't get this teepee built by March, that's my shelter month when I start like focusing on shelters. And I think I'm going to whip this thing up, this uh, hobo cone house rather. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to figure out this ventilation thing. And uh, I've sworn, especially with this cold day today, like this is the last winter, we're not going to have some kind of shelter. The van is a really nice shelter. I mean, even like when we don't have it running or anything, you get in, you can feel it's warmer in here. You get out of the wind, but uh, it's still kind of roughing it. I mean, you want some active heat, you know, not just trapped heat, but like a fire, a place you can cook, a place to feels like you're inside a room more. So I'm realizing how very doable that is. And I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think before we leave the topic, any other tips for ventilation in case you're somebody that's working on ventilation in your shelter. And, uh, Oh, I can't think anything off the top of my head. Another thing that might be against us is the plastic. People are saying, like, you know, using a different kind of fabric, anything from wool blankets to hides, if you can, which I like hearing that because we don't have hides, we don't have wool blankets, but that gives me an idea. Sometimes I can scavenge things that are like, well, this is kind of like that, so it might have some similar properties. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, all these things might help. I got a feeling, like, using all these or some of them is going to solve the smoke problem. Hopefully, because, yeah, I think... Our van is amazing, but it would be nice to have that alternative because the heat in the van doesn't stay very long. And I don't feel like trying to insulate this van like some people do. I don't think it would help very much. But yeah. Maybe there's somebody out there that thinks otherwise. And that was a few days ago, and then uh, it's turning cold again, and they threaten snow again, but it looks like the snow uh, advisory is kind of turned into not much anything. But 
we decided it'd be good to have a shelter. The teepee wasn't working well enough, so let's try to throw up something else. So I tied together the poles. <laughs> yeah, I tied the poles together in a different structure that looks kind of like those uh, dog tents from the Civil War. You know, and you see like uh, Civil War soldiers sleeping in those tents out on the edge of the battlefield. It looks kind of like that, where it's got like the A-frame and uh, a back. And again, there's pictures on Facebook if you're curious. Um, but yeah, just used some of the scavenged plastic we had and just redid basically most of the stuff we used for the teepee, tied it up different, and made a dog tent, which sheds water really well and uh, gives us everything we want except for a source of heat inside of it. So we've got a great windbreak, sheds water beautifully, good place to go in if it's raining, you know, to feed the dog, uh, do my exercises in the morning and evening, whatever we need a little dry space for, like a little room. Um, but yeah, man. Again, I'm inspired. All I need to do is figure out ventilation, like a chimney or something like that. And uh, bam, we got a pretty good shelter. Oh, yeah. And of course, we've been watching. We finally watched all the seasons of Alone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're inspired by their shelter builds. And uh, surprisingly, Gumby, you had another run in, well, like watching the show. You had another run in with somebody that you that you knew. From your, like, uh, wilderness school days or whatever. Yeah, that was season nine, right? Eight. Eight? Yeah. So if you've watched season eight of Alone, that guy, Matt, with the uh, frizzy uh, Geico caveman hair, that's, uh, I knew him by Tofu. And yeah, he was one of my survival instructors. We started out kind of around the same time at the tracker school, but he really buckled down and, like, you know, pushed himself, whereas I was just kind of toying with it for a while and... Uh, you know, I was dealing drugs, getting into doing drugs, just kind of, uh, I don't know, goofing off. I was into survival skills for a while, but he was serious about it. So he rose through the ranks and became a head instructor there. Um, so that was a big surprise. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's tofu. And, um, yeah. Cause especially with that, um, mindset of wilderness survival skills versus like bushcraft, we were interested to see how he would do and if there's any people that uh, haven't watched it, just in case, you know, spoilers. So be aware of that in this episode. But yeah, it was interesting um, to see the differences in in like the mindset of how you do things. You want to have any other comments about him or the show? Well... Like you're saying, he was kind of, it's a whole different style of survival he was using out there. Like he built the first that I've seen, debris hut, um, that doesn't have a fire inside, things like that. And I don't know, so one of the things, like, if you start off at the tracker school, Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School, one of the things that they really push there, um, Tom has a huge ego. So he really lets you know that he's got the real stuff. Um, he says right in the first class you take with him, like, oh, you can go out there and try other people's stuff, but please try my stuff first, because if you try the, what I'm going to teach you, I know you'll be alive long enough to try everybody else's stuff. And it's just, you know, that kind of rhetoric, um, all the time at the tracker school. And if you're young and impressionable, like I was, it sinks in deep. So I didn't want to, I didn't care how anybody else did it. They were doing it wrong. If they didn't teach it at the tracker school, um, I didn't care. You, you guys are probably going to die. So after years and years of struggling with all the tracker style stuff, only now am I branching out, trying other stuff and realizing a lot of it is great. Um, and I feel like tofu 
known as Matt, on the show. Um, by holding to that kind of tracker school style, I don't think it served him well. That was my opinion. I mean, of course, we're, you know, being armchair survivalists here watching alone. We're not out there. But I was looking at that debris hut, and I'm like, man, if he would have made it till it snowed, I don't think he would have been doing too well. Um, I got so tired of trying to crawl into debris huts, getting claustrophobic, being cold. Um, so now that I'm like, I've been in a couple other shelters or people had fire inside. I'm like, what the hell have I been doing? <laughs> like, this is how you do it. This is actually comfortable. I actually want to be in here. So yeah. And, uh, you know, and at the end, Tofu, like he tapped out, hit the button and he did something that like, I hate it when people do, um, And you see a lot of people doing this. When they're ready to tap out, and I'm not faulting anybody for tapping out. That shit's hard. You know, it's hard to, like, see, get an impression of somebody, like, that's been out there for two or three weeks and, like, what they're dealing with in their heads. Um, So when they tap out, you know, all right, fine, I get it. But a lot of them will try to make an excuse of why they tapped out. They'll act like they're too good for the show. They'll uh, say things like, I came out here to do this and I have achieved it. And so I'm ready to go home. Yeah. I'm not going to let, I'm not going to stay out here just because of ego. And I want to scream at the show. And sometimes I do scream at the show. You went out there for $500,000, you asshole. No, that's, I didn't. It was a spiritual experience for me. It had nothing to do with the money. That's not ego. <laughs> and the ego is actually in them pretending like it's ego. I, I, I'd like to see more people just say, I got my ass whipped. I'm leaving because I got chewed up and spit out. But I hate that look some of these guys get in their eyes, this defiant, egotistical look when the, the people show up after they've hit the button and they're just like, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going home to my family because this is stupid. This is, the you know, <laughs> it's only just ego that was keeping me out there. And to be fair, I mean, I have enjoyed immensely these seasons of Alone. But it is kind of a stupid thing that they put them out there at the worst time of year. And, of course, they're by themselves because it's alone. Well, it's not a stupid thing because it's supposed to be challenging. That's the challenge. That's why somebody said it's worth it, you know, why we have $500,000 for you. Not so you can go build a hammock on a tropical island and sip coconuts. I mean, hell, who wouldn't sign up to do that for $500,000? Like, man, I can sip coconuts longer than any of y'all motherfuckers. <laughs> I can sleep in a hammock twice as long as the best of you. Yeah. So it's not stupid, but I think maybe what you're trying to say is that it doesn't represent survivalism that well because of the challenging time and the challenging place they're put out there. Yeah. I don't think it's stupid. It's like, oh, we don't know about nature. I think they know what they're doing. It's like... We're well, putting them out there into the fray, into the challenge. Yeah, I was mainly trying to empathize with people that say that, even though it is egotistical. Like, I would rather hear someone say, like, man, that was hard. I don't have anything left in me. You know, this is, I'm done. I'm just done. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just be honest. If you're, if they pull you because your weight's too low and they're like, medically, we can't let you out there, keep, let you stay out here. All right. You get hurt. All right. You just really want to go home because you're broken. You miss your family. You can't take it anymore. Fine. That's legitimate. But own that shit. I hate that little ego trip of like, I'm going to pretend like I'm actually not doing the egotistical thing, but actually by pretending like it didn't beat me, that's your ego talking. Mm -hmm. It's like a subtle little like, I don't know, little ego trick. Oh, I just saw this quote and shared it today. I don't know who came up with it, and I'm sure someone else has come up with a similar 
thought. In fact, I think Gumby did too. Um, but this is the quote. It says, you are so powerful that when you think you're not, you're not. And that reminded me, Gumby, I've, I've shared this before on a podcast that we did of, you said something like, if you're, if you're going to pretend to not be good at something, or you said something like, if you are going to think that you're not good, why don't you think that you are good? Yeah, if you're going to pretend to be something, then pretend to be something great. Yeah. Which, you know, it sounds really simple, but it's kind of tricky because most of us don't think we're pretending to be anything. We think that's, in fact, what we really are. But if you can get to that level where you realize, like, you're pretending to be weak and and just not up for anything, um, you can start to switch that. But, yeah, I like that saying. When you first shared that with me, I had to read it a few times to get it because it's so simple yet so uh, profound. Actually, can you read that? Can you share that one more time? You are so powerful that when you think you're not, you're not. Yeah, it reminds me of like what we shared in Black Magic White Science when we were saying like the darkest magic that our culture has ever worked on the people of our culture is to believe there's no such thing as magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it reminded me of a conversation we had a couple days ago. And I wrote this down when you were saying it. Hopefully, you'll it'll jog your memory. I think we may have been <clears throat> a little high. But you said, every bit of what's happening to us is self-inflicted. It's not the aliens, it's not the planet, and it's not a zombie apocalypse. Fact check false. Context missing. (laughs) And then you said, and I wrote this down too, are we building machines to destroy everything just so we can blame someone else? Well, I want to give a little context for that because it's not just like in our personal lives, although a lot of that could be applied to our personal lives. Um but when I say everything that's happening to us, I mean as a people, as a culture. Mm-hmm. I was just marveling that day of like, you ever really stop and consider that how anxious we all are, depressed, scared, like in trouble, there's all this stuff happening. And every single damn bit of it is self-inflicted. It's what we're doing to ourselves. There's no aliens that showed up and did this to us. No, nothing to blame it on. Not that we know of. Not that we know of. Yeah, I mean, there are other schools of thought on that. But as far as I know, the remarkable thing is that we're doing this to ourselves. And I even, like, as you were alluding to, considered, like, what if one of the reasons why we're so uh, into building these machines is to have something to blame it on? (laughs) You know, like, wouldn't it be great if the machines took over? And I, I feel like one of the worst things to deal with is... To be the species on this little beautiful planet in the middle of nowhere, out in this vast space, and realize that we can't think of anything better to do than to annihilate ourselves and make ourselves miserable. Nobody's doing that to us. Nobody is doing that to us. We're doing that to ourselves. And, man, if we can build something that takes over, as these machines are, um, I wonder if that's kind of preferable. Then we can blame somebody. We need a bad guy, even if we have to build the bad guy. Because mm-hmm. the worst thing is to think it's you. Yeah, and it it also, well, I think in that same conversation we were having, we, um, boy, we get biblical high. Like when we start talking <laughs> some deep philosophical stuff, we, we start to get biblical. And Gumby um, 
gosh, I'm not even sure how it came up, but we were talking about Cain and Abel and how um, one of them killed the other. And it was like pastoralism. It was like the shepherding life was being undone. I mean, this is the deep part of how we're destroying ourselves because pastoralism. Oh man, I didn't know you were going to go here. I I hope you took some good notes. It's a lot closer. Pastoralism is a lot closer to like the garden of Eden, like being able to live in harmony with our environment, not just in harmony, just like as a part of our environment. And you said that, um, I'm not sure where you read it at, but it was like, uh, like a historical marker reminding, like writing in history of the murdering, the actual doing away with a way of life. Yeah, I'm going to, again, I didn't prepare for this and I had this <laughs> thought many days ago and I was like, as Teresa says, biblically high. <laughs> but let's see if I can run through this one more time. The Cain and Abel story, if I remember right, is that... I believe, was Cain the agriculturalist? The farmer. The farmer. And Abel, God's favorite, was the pastoralist. And so for a sacrifice to God, Abel gave... Like a a sheep or lamb. Yeah, a sheep or a lamb. And what did Cain give? Like a basket of vegetables or something. Something. And, and, I, I always and you can tell how much we know the story. Right. So <laughs> I was wondering, I've always wondered, well, what was wrong with that? I mean, he he toiled by the sweat of his brow, had to slow down to say that, um, to get those crops to grow, to get all of those things that he could offer to God. So what was wrong with that? But I don't know, like learning more about what agriculture is like what it what it deeply means is that you're basically turning your back on on nature on god on the higher power whatever you want to call it and you're like taking matters into your own hands yeah i think one question that doesn't get asked enough is why was abel god's favorite you know i feel like uh, we just kind of think we've got this picture like, well, Abel must have been a good guy. Cain was an asshole. God doesn't like assholes. <laughs> but I think there's more to the story than that. I think it's why Cain was God's favorite is the Garden of, e- Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was... Uh, I think Abel is the pastoralist. Yeah, Abel is the pastoralist. Mm-hmm. What did I say? Cain was God's favorite. No, Abel is God's favorite. And I think like... What if the reason for that is the Garden of Eden is living in the hands of the gods, having faith, having faith that God will provide. A pastoralist, these are people that have lost their path with God. They've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now, what if Abel's lifestyle is a pastoralist? Think about how a herder lives. It's still got the stink of civilization about it. You're trying to keep animals captive. But it's a very simple life. You're still wandering around. You're still sleeping under the stars like a cowboy is like a more modern version of this pastoralism. Um, What if that's got more of the, I don't know, potential? It's got the nomadic lifestyle, the the connection to the land. It's maybe not as much of a forcing of nature's hand. 
And what if that's why, like, Abel is God's favorite? And Cain, the agriculturalist, is forcing God's hand. He's not trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. He's trying to rebuild a Garden of Eden in man's image. Mm -hmm. My vegetables, the way I want to grow them, planted by me. I put them there. I put as many as I want. I'll take more land to get more land to grow vegetables on. And what if that was like a more direct path away from God? And that's why Abel was God's favorite. What if God saw something in that way of life that's like, that's not so far from the garden. You might actually earn your way back to the Garden yeah. of Eden. But he saw something dangerous in Cain's path, like, you're actually trying to replace me. You resent me. Like, your path is actually going to forget me altogether. And that's not going to be good for anybody. Because, huh? I was just going to say, I was going to say something, but finish your thought if you remember it. No, I think that was about it. Oh. Um, it reminds me of, like, when you talk about somebody sleeping out under the stars they are not, um, eventually, I mean, if it's your first night out with your herd and you're not used to it, it might be strange, but eventually you don't even think about it. I mean, you're going to sleep and you just, you know, lay down, maybe you have a a covering or some sort of bedroll or something and that's it. You don't need walls. You don't need the heat on or the AC, you know, you don't need to lock a door. You just go to sleep and you're you're part of the environment. Like everything about that just feels normal. When you're in your house, you're a part of that environment. It's not like you're adding more stuff. Like you're not putting a tent up in your house. (laughs) You're a part of your house. You have walls that, that keep you apart from the trees, from the stars and the wind and all of that. So if you're closer to being like a pastoralist, um, to the garden of Eden, then eventually everywhere becomes the garden of Eden. It just, I don't want to say it is what it is in such a a callous way, but everything is your home. And I feel like that sometimes even today, like the cold outside is cold, but when you come in the van, it's not like it's nice and toasty warm, but it feels a lot better. So it's, it's kind of changing where my my sense of normalcy is. So I'm closer when I'm living outside, but I come in the van and it feels warm. I'm closer to feeling like the outside is warm and comfortable and I can just sit out there than if I'm in a house. Like there's so many degrees of being away from the garden. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's commonly accepted that our civilization is based upon agriculture, and it couldn't have happened based on pastoralism. Um, and a, 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 what am I trying to say? A culture that is more pastoral based might be like you picture those people like in the Middle East in ancient times, you know, that had their shepherds and their goats that they traveled around with. It was a much simpler life in a lot of ways. So I feel like, you know, our civilization probably, if I was going to say like, you know, whatever we're calling God. Um, of course, that's a whole big conversation in itself, but what civilization has ever seemed the furthest from God? I would say ours. Mm-hmm. Would you? I, I think so. I'm Why? Why would you say our civilization is furthest from God? Well, especially when it comes to thinking that we know everything, um, it's... 
we don't know, like, one week we think this, and then the next week, I swear, there's a news story that says the exact opposite has been found out about many subjects. So I guess that would be one of the main ones, I would say, is that we think we know everything when we we really don't. And that's, I don't think, even possible for people to know everything of how it works and how things are. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just... Uh... <laughs> I keep losing the word I'm looking for. A crazily ambitious question. It's a complicated one. But if I had to boil it down, I think the one thing, like if I had to take it to a word, would be hubris. Mm. Like we are trying to be gods. You know, all the things that we think of is like if God was deified, what would this deity do? Control? Judge? Uh, <laughs> you know, like expand? Omnipotence? Omnipresence? I mean... It's all the things that we, alone from any other culture, have reached for with everything. We've put all our energy into it. Any sacrifice is worth it to be the new gods. Um, Daniel Quinn writes this great thing. Man, I wish I'd uh, uh, written it down, but it was like, oh, man. It's like Adam talking to the gods, like from Adam and Eve, Adam. And, uh... Damn, I can't even remember enough to share it. Oh, no. But it was so good. But basically, um, the part that I'm trying to remember is they're saying that, you know, civilization must continue, that there would be no um, no price too big. No matter how many people suffer, no matter how many people die, no matter how many people have to be murdered, you can't walk away. Civilization must continue. And I feel like that's the antithesis of God. Civilization becomes God. Civilization is what's omnipotent. Civilization must be eternal. Civilization has no end. It's the Alpha and the Omega. It's the one thing you can't question. It's the one thing you can't leave. We can talk about like how to get electricity from different methods, but we can't talk about doing away with electricity. Once things become part of civilization, the one biggest taboo in our culture, I feel like, um, the blasphemy, is to talk about doing without it. Even now, like with a little bit that Teresa and I are doing, just the thought of um, not needing civilization will really piss off people. You know, oh. Daniel Quinn said that too. He said yeah. something to the effect of, if you walk away from civilization, um, you've already won your revolution. You don't have to worry about any vote. You don't have to worry about any organization. You don't have to worry about the next program. Um, you've won your revolution. But be prepared for the wrath of your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And I, I had that quote written down at one time, but it was something to that effect. And I, I liked it at the time, but I didn't realize how true that was. And I don't know how Daniel Quinn knew this, because as far as I know, Daniel Quinn never did anything like this. But somehow he got this insight, and I think he's right. There's something about trying to get out of civilization. It's like leaving the prison, and the prisoners that are still inside fucking hate you. <laughs> so... I don't know. You run into a lot of that from surprising corners. People who are philosophically should be pretty close to what we're doing, like anarcho-primitivists and stuff like that. But it's an interesting reaction. And, of course, I'm not saying everybody because, like, the the woman in the park, there's still plenty of kindness out there, too. Mm -hmm. People that are on a whole different paradigm. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, judgment that I got recently from my uncle who in – previous podcasts I've mentioned just because he was, it seemed like, um, what he did with his 
summer months. He was a teacher, so he had like three months off in the summer. That recharged him for the other nine months. And what he did was he like packed up his truck and went out west and traveled around and was hiking in like crazy remote places and driving and camping in all these beautiful, gorgeous areas of the Western United States. And he sent me an email the other day and it just crushed me. And he said, um, like not trying to sound judgmental, but when are you going to go back to living a normal life? not living in nature. Did he say it like that? Not living in nature? It was like normal was the opposite of nature. Huh. And and then he like summed it up. But just saying, I'm just saying, like, you know, when are you going to give up all that stuff you're doing out there and go back to a normal life living inside in a house? And that just was, <sighs> that was a, little bit of a blow to me. I mean, that's my, that was like an inspiration for what I'm doing. And then the person that has inspired me, uh, just kind of threw it all into a different perspective. Well, what he helped you realize and what he taught you and what he inspired you about, like, doesn't go away. That's true. So he's still that person, you're still that person, and that still happened. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, you know, it's disappointing when we run into somebody that, like, um, I don't know, we had a connection with, and then, like, they don't get us. But I think it's really important at those times not to fall into the trap of rewriting history. Mm -hmm. People do that all the time. I uh, I don't want to sound... Uh, no, no. I don't want to sound point. misogynistic here, but uh, maybe it's because I'm a guy. And, of course, I haven't been in relationships with other guys because I'm not gay. You know you know who doesn't need to say they're not gay? <laughs> Me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just confused myself. <laughs> what the hell was I talking about? You were saying that people rewrite history. Yeah. So, You're about to say mostly women do that. Well, I've only I've seen mostly women. I was trying to provide a caveat that guys might do this too, but I've seen so many women that the way they get over breaking up with someone is to rewrite history. That's they never liked this person. Yeah. You know, like the, any good times that were with that person, the only way they get past that, they have to rewrite history. And I was, I've been chilled by that a few times. Like, Wow. It's like, I mean, like none of that happened for you, but for me, it's still intact. And so it's this weird, like dizzying moment. Like, wow, this is like a Twilight Zone episode. Like, I don't think they're lying. They fucking believe it. Yeah. They just re it was like some Winston Smith shit they did on themselves. <laughs> so I think we have to avoid that temptation. And I'd say that also with your uncle, like mm. you can be like ticked at his opinion now, something that he doesn't get. And you know, I'm kind of ticked about people saying stuff like that, too. Like, my my response is always like, when are you going to start fucking making normal look more attractive? <laughs> but, um, Woo, yeah, but it, but like I said, don't forget who he is and, and was. Yeah. Thank you for that. Sometimes I need, I need Gumby to give me a, a therapy session on the podcast. I think I do that because I am such an asshole that I've learned to be careful about that. I'm the mm. first person that can jump into hating, hating someone. My emotions can carry me away. So I think 
the good side of that is it's made me a little bit sensitive to that. So when I see people getting into that territory, I'm like, you better be careful. I don't know if you see the danger here, but you can fucking really like hate somebody if you, if you let yourself slip. It's that powerful mind of ours. You know, if you think it, you might just be it. Yeah. And the past, I remember the first time I ran into this idea that the past can be changed as well as the future. I thought it was neat, but I didn't really get it. Mm. But I'm starting to get it more. The past is not fixed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow, this has taken a a really philosophical bent, I feel. (laughs) Man, you brought up biblical stuff. How could it not? (laughs) I did. That was was my bad. Um, We were also talking the uh the last week here about why we feel like certain people are brainwashed oh man you getting into some shit <laughs> i tried to take notes on our conversation well, like i said i hope you took good ones because well, <laughs> i just mainly wrote down how is it that some people on the one hand and i could actually name two that I mean, if you listen to their podcast, you'd be like, yeah, but we haven't listened to it lately. Um, what was that? A government Secrets podcast? Pew, 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 pew. We used to listen to that, and they used to talk shit about the government all the time. But then when all, like, all this COVID stuff happened, and the government was doing all these you know, lockdowns and all sorts of different measures... They went we, right along with it. Yeah, we don't even need to single them out. We all know the brainwashed people. We all know the people that say, get out and vote like it's your duty every year and forget how often, like, it doesn't work. Corruption happens yeah. around yeah. voting. Every <laughs> fucking election, there's some crooked shit that happens. Yeah. The people that um, were warning against Big Pharma, like, and then as soon as they got scared, Big Pharma could do no wrong. I mean, the brainwashed people. We yeah. all know who we're talking about. Yeah. Oh, we were listening to this um, this other podcast, Union of the Unwanted. And I wrote down some things from that episode, too. So one of them, somebody pointed out that uh, those folks online or just if you happen to have conversations that are not online anymore that say, like, I'm no expert, but blah, 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 you could almost take out the word expert and replace it with critical thinker because these people have in many ways outsourced their thinking to mainstream media. And it's, it's uncanny how many people will say these messages and it's like, they're just reading from a script. My mom sent me this weird text message the other day about getting free at home COVID tests from the government. And it was, it read like she copied and pasted it from a government website. Mm-hmm. It's like I was getting text messages from the uh, whatever. Yeah. From like, the government. From Fauci. Yeah, there's people all spouting the same message and, you know, holding the same beliefs and ignoring the same things. But your question is, why are some people brainwashed and some people aren't? And mm-hmm. I know that's the terms I was thinking about it when we talked about it before. But right now, what I'm thinking about is what if we're all brainwashed? We're just brainwashed in different ways. Yeah. And I don't know how intentional that is. You know, when you learn about those three, like suggestion, repetition, and emotion. And as we talked about, like we're always getting brainwashed. Even nature. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I guess I couldn't say nature puts a suggestion in our head. 
But as far as human interaction, yeah, like that is social interaction. We're all brainwashing each other. So I wonder if like just some of us got brainwashed in a certain way that like this form of brainwashing wasn't aimed at us. It was never meant to be effective on us. Oh, wow. It's like that. Who is it said that said 20% of the population you will never be able to convince? 20% of the population Aldous you will Huxley always be able to convince? It doesn't sound right. Could be. And it's the 60% that are left that you got to worry about. You got to convince them. 20% are already on your side. All you have to do is say jump and they jump. 20% don't try. You're going to have to have another tactic for them. Mm-hmm. And 60%, those are the people that can be persuaded. And so... You know, I wonder if that 20% that can't be persuaded, it's because we're already like hold other beliefs that might still be erroneous. I mean, when I look at the people that aren't brainwashed for, let's say, COVID, you know, that aren't, that know something's weird about it, that aren't just like, oh, you got to get the booster. That's the answer. You know, people that are thinking and listening to other people, there's still a lot of argument between those people. So, you know, that's a lot of room that somebody's wrong. If we're all arguing about all these things, like... Either we're wrong, somebody's wrong in their views, or we're wrong about the way we see the universe, that our view has to win out against another view or something. We're wrong about something, obviously, if we're arguing, right? Yeah. So, you know, that that makes me not see it so much as like the brainwashed and the awake, because it seems like if we were truly awake, we'd, we'd agree with each other more. We're just not asleep in the sharing the same dream. We're not part of the dominant dream. Yeah, it's... To me, when they were talking on the Union of the Unwanted podcast about um, all the different ways that, oh man, I'm I'm losing my thread here. I have written down, this is what I have written down, I was trying to like loop it all together, but they were specifically talking about um, with COVID, like the brainwashing, I feel it's happening. So there was somebody that questioned, like, if they named COVID-19 because it was for a coronavirus in 2019, why wouldn't there be a COVID-20 or COVID-21? Because there are different um, variants happening. So if you, even if it's not a newly discovered coronavirus, what happened to, like, the common cold and the flu that also are variants and happen this time of year. It's almost like they they changed the cold and the flu into these COVID variants. Yeah, that's an idea I'm more coming around to more and more is that what this all is, is they rebranded basically the cold. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the way it changed, like it was coronavirus. And then it came out like, well, coronavirus is just the cold. <laughs> or and the flu, Or Ebola, to be fair. Yeah. But it's a known group of things that, you know, we'd kind of wrapped our head around like, oh, it's not Ebola. Well, it's probably one of those other things. We we already know it's coronavirus. Yeah. And uh, then the rebranding changed like really quickly. And now we're talking about COVID-19. It's not COVID coronavirus. coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And so COVID-19 was a more specific thing, a rebranding thing. And it kind of, you know, keeps us a little like on shaky ground. And then COVID-19 gets replaced by Names like Delta, <laughs> Omicron. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I I don't know. I'm trying to keep in mind, like, you know, we've got that uh, friend that's a nurse in Florida, and she, people like her have said there's been an increase. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's 
partly both maybe. Like they rebranded it, but there is, for whatever reason, a particularly strong Mm -hmm. version of this. But, you know, basically it's a strong cold or strong flu, but the rebranding makes it even scarier. Yeah. Yeah, I could go along with that. Yeah, so it's just, I don't know, like the question that, that Gumby and I were just kind of toying with is why certain people are brainwashed, so... I don't know if the listeners have any. Well, I agree thoughts. they're brainwashed. You you said you think they're brainwashed. I guess my question to you would be, do you think we're brainwashed? We could possibly be brainwashed. Yeah, I guess so. Yes. Why aren't we brainwashed like they're brainwashed? Well, that was what we were talking about. Yeah, but I kind of said a little bit about what I thought. Why do you think we're not brainwashed like they're brainwashed? Hmm. Well, initially, I, I think I was talking about the amount of media that we're exposed to because we don't constantly have a TV on. We don't constantly have, you know, any sort of radio or mainstream media. We basically listen to like two or three podcasts. Oh, I remember us having this debate. We Mm -hmm. were using your mom as an example. Your mom is a really good example of somebody that's totally bought into the mainstream narrative. all the Kool-Aid. Yeah. I mean, she promotes everything she's supposed to promote. (laughs) Yeah. All the boosters. Um, But my question to Teresa is she said her mom watches a lot more media than I do. I was contrasting myself with your mom and saying, how come I'm not brainwashed? Mm-hmm. Why is she, if this is what's going on? And you said because the that she sees so much media. So my question in return, well, she sees so much media because she wants to. There's something in her that is seeking mm. media. I could also lead a life if I wanted more media. I could download podcasts from CNN. Mm-hmm. I could watch like the late show. I could, I could, I, you know, it wouldn't be too hard for me to bring these things into my life. So underneath that, I agree that she's watching more media, which is telling her what to think, but how come she wants to, and I don't. And as you said before, the qu- the question kind of makes an assumption that we're not brainwashed. We might just be brainwashed in the opposite way. Yeah, so the media is an easy answer. You can see where the brainwashing ha- washing is happening. But if the rest of us are not, I wonder if what some of these like uh, anti-government podcasts, these uh, books, mm-hmm. you know, if that's part of like how you try to control the other people, you co-opt um, the movement. If you've noticed, something I've gotten really sensitive to is a lot of people who you think are really rebellious and uh, trying to start the revolution, when you boil down their message— they're all ways of keeping going in civilization. Hmm. They all boil down to something that keeps you here, fulfills a need that maybe if it didn't get checked, you'd be like, man, I got to get out of this shit. Mm-hmm. I just got to go. But now you've got this kind of pseudo thing, you know? So I wonder if that's kind of the brainwashing that finds people like us. And it's not as effective as the stuff through the media. Those people re- like repeat everything like parrots. Yeah. But then it's again, really they're, so do some resistance people now that I think about it. So, yeah, I think there's brainwashing out there for both of us. But, Man. you know, they've got a way of kind of scooping up the people that the mainstream can't catch. So consider that and try not to uh, develop a psychosis. <laughs> <laughs> but take it easy. Uh, <laughs> Don't be yeah. paranoid. Yeah. Relax. Look at the birds. <laughs> oh, oh. Speaking of looking at the birds, we just finished reading this awesome, 
awesome book that I believe Bill from Switzerland, one of our listeners, wrote in and first. I believe so. It was so us. good. Oh my God. This book is. Okay. It's called <laughs> The Stranger in the Woods by Michael Finkel. Fink, E L. The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. And it's the. Um, this guy. Like, he looked up all this stuff about Christopher Knight, who was the North Pond Hermit. Not just looked up, looked up but, like, interviewed him and all the people in his life. And... Yeah. So he knew everything, well, everything that there was to know about the North Pond Hermit. But in addition to that, brought in, like, all these different, um, oh, what did he say that blew my mind? All these different resources that he looked up and read about hermits. And just the, what... Being in solitary confinement or being out in nature or this one woman was like in a cave by herself for I don't know how many days, what it does to your mind, like the good things and the bad things. And I think that part of the book, in addition to the this guy actually did it, blew my mind. And Christopher Knight, he when he was either in his teens or early 20s, like young in 1986, he had never left his little town of Maine and uh, just seemed like a, a regular kid and worked, got a got a car with the help of his brother and took a road trip and went all the way down to Florida, came back up to Maine and uh, just kept going, just decided like he wasn't going back in society. It just, you know, he had to get out right then. So he goes to this Those like trips to Florida, man. <laughs> he uh, gets on this like dirt road, goes as far in the woods as he can and gets out and uh, just starts walking. And uh, doesn't go back. He stays out there for over 20 years in Maine. Now, if that's not crazy, um, and I don't mean crazy like insane. I mean crazy like wow. um, Think about he was out there for over 20 years in Maine winters. And not once did he start a fire. He had just a little tent, sleeping bag some minimal stuff, and he just stayed out, like, kind of in a little shelter between these two giant rocks, um, just by himself. And he would break into people's houses, like cabins around the lake, to steal food or batteries or clothes that he needed. Um, But he'd just go in there and, like, really expertly, quietly take a few things and then bring it back out with him. Um, But, yeah, no fire all winter, no heat. And in that whole time... He said he never spoke to himself, out loud anyway. And the only time that he spoke to anyone else was when he, like, miscalculated. He was very methodical about, like, not leaving footprints in the snow. So he would just stay in his winter camp, or, well, his camp all year round. But he would just stay there in the winter um, and not go out to the, the people's houses to take anything. Because he didn't want to leave tracks in the snow. But one time he kind of was... I guess just do, like starting to do this at his camp and he went out and a hiker saw him. And so he just said, hi, it was the one word he said for over 20 years. And it's beautiful how the book's written. Cause, uh, he really, the author gets into, like you were saying, Teresa, both sides, he really explores what it means to be a hermit and how much in our culture and our history, you know, there have been, um, kind of precedence for this. And these people have been like holy people and brought back like profound insights, these hermits. 
um, and just the beauty of solitude and how many people, um, famous people, have said things to that effect. Like, you have to go into the depths of your solitude. Um, he shares stories of other people that have dealt with solitude, like this guy that was in solitary confinement in prison for, mm-hmm. I forget how long, like 14 years or something. And uh, one I found found interesting was there was some kind of study where this woman went into a cave um, in another country in Europe. In France, I think. Could be France. And she was by herself for, do you remember how long? I don't, but it was a, a surprisingly long time to be in a cave by oneself. Um, I, I want to say, was it like 44 days or something? Something. And she came out and uh, it had really done strange things to her mind. Like one thing she said is the only way she could survive it is she could not lie to herself. And when she came out, she had no tolerance for dishonesty. She could not abide by a lie. Um, imagine being with somebody like that, like, wow, that's unique, you know, whatever she tapped into and she ended up killing herself. She couldn't handle whatever she met in that, that cave. So this guy was go out there and he, he described so beautifully what solitude was like for him. He said, everything stopped. He completely wasn't there. He was just everything. Wow. You know, it was like. It was like what all holy people talk about, like what they get from stuff like that, these, these sojourns. Um, and it was beautiful. And But it, it also, you know, talked about how people were scared of him. You know, people were like, I had a place out in the woods and we used to like leave our windows open and stuff, but I can't stand this guy. He like took away my peace for over 20 yeah. years. We had to live like we were in the city. We had to lock stuff. It would still get broken into. Like... You know, that, and that was a damn good point because some hermits were saying of, uh, or people in this, I don't know, hermitary group or something, <laughs> were saying of the North Pond hermit, Chris, what's his name Knight. again? Chris Knight. Um, yeah, he's not a true hermit because hermits don't do that. He's a thief. Hermits don't go and take people's stuff. And he's enforcing a bad stereotype that hermits are like parasites, you know, and that's not what being a hermit is. And that's a damn good point. So I like that book a lot. Oh, it gave definitely. me a lot to think about. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's chock full of sources that maybe you've heard of, um, but probably you haven't, just to like, I don't know, learn more about the subjects he talks about. And then just Christopher Knight's experience. My God, it was just so poetic and beautiful. And it it's kind of interesting to read this book in addition to watching the show alone, because of course they're also alone out there. Not, not for 20 something years <laughs> trying to work on like over a hundred days, but good on them. What else you got? Anything? Hey, you got anything else about that book? I feel like there's something else I want to say about it and I can't remember. Um, no, I just, I really want to thank Bill from Switzerland again for telling us about it. <laughs> and okay. I, I think you can, I think you might be able to find it online in a PDF for free. I'll see if I can find that. But we have the book from the library. My goodness. Yeah, I think that's all I got. I got more on my list, but it's kind of one of those days. It's cold and gray and I'm kind of tired. I think I, uh, you know, if we uh, we do an hour, I think we're okay. I'd feel like I'd push, I'm pushing it. All right. So I'll do a listener right in then. Um, this is an interesting write-in, and I'm not sure where this person is from, but I guess their name is Kojak. 
<laughs> and Oh, you got to do it in Kojak's voice. I don't even know what that is. Teddy Savali. I don't know. But Kojak says, okay, this is in reference to a shot. Do it like you're a big bald guy, like Lex Luthor bald in the 70s, and you're kind of like a pimp daddy that got hired as a detective. I don't know. That's your motivation. Go. (laughs) I can't. I can't. I'm psyching myself out. Feel it. Feel it. You're a pimp daddy from the 70s. You got this? Oh, my God. No, I don't. I, all I have is John Chica- Travolta. It's unbelievable. No, no, in Chicago, and you're bald, shiny bald, like oh. Slither. You feel it. You can feel it. I really can't do this. I just have to read it. I'm sorry. If you want to try it, you can. No, I can't feel it either. All right. I don't know how to be a bald white guy. <laughs> it's shiny sometimes, too. Um, Kojak says, I stopped the world with denied expectation. Yay. I, too, was surprised. Very surprised. What was Stopping the World about? That was the episode or the Stopping the World was our episode about Carlos Castaneda. Oh, whoa. So that wasn't a shot. That was a whole episode on Carlos Castaneda. And I just realized that's what we named it. Cool. Um, What do you think about that statement? Well... Denied expectations. Is I that stopped me? the world, so like yeah. you know, according to Carlos, it's kind of like stopping your mind, but a lot more with denied expectations. So, so not having expectations. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. yeah. If you have no expectations, you train yeah. yourself not to expect anything. Then, yeah. Whoa. So it's like almost... he said, yeah. 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 <laughs> Kojak, man, holy shit. That was deep. That was deep. I got to hand it to you. That went a lot deeper than I thought it would. And you know what he follows that with? I, (laughs) too. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) I, too, was surprised. Very surprised. Man, go Jack. I was, too. (laughs) Where did you write? Where did that listener writing come from? Some Carlos Castaneda Facebook page. Oh, 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 oh. Well, that's why. Oh, that's fantastic. Ooh, Kojak, I hope you're still listening. (laughs) Write to us if you are. Yeah, drop some more pearls of wisdom. Yeah, so um, you can write to us uh, by going to our website. We have a contact form there, and evidently um, spam bots have found it, so that's awesome. Free porn, free porn. Um, So our website is escapingsociety.weebly.com. The contact form's right on the homepage there. uh, Homepage. Homepage. We also have a Facebook page because we're Escaping Society digitally. Um, And that can be found at Escaping Society. And our website has uh, our YouTube channel link and a donate button um, because we also like to pay to stay in society. But we pay in many different ways, including sometimes money. Gumby, you got anything else you want to say? No, I can't think of nothing. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, write us. We want to hear from you. Bye.
society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to so, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.